All right. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, it's been about seven, uh, seven months since my first sermon went viral. Um, so I thought it was time to circle back and continue on with part two of our discussion regarding the spiritual disciplines. Um, because it's been so long, and I know uh, several of you uh, weren't here that last time, I figured I'd do a brief recap uh, before diving right in. So the inspiration for the topic is based on this book, Celebration of Discipline, by Richard Foster. And it's, uh, it's highly regarded as one of the best um, works on the spiritual disciplines kind of in this modern era. Uh, so I'd highly recommend uh, reading it, and I'll reference it quite a bit throughout, the, uh, throughout today. Um, Foster beautifully articulates what the practice of the spiritual disciplines looks like um, in our daily lives, how they should manifest within us, and then also some of the challenges that we'll experience as, we, um, as they become part of our daily walk. Um, one of the points that he really hammers home is that uh, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. And I wanted to read a quick excerpt regarding that. The disciplines are for the purpose of realizing a greater good. In and of themselves, they are no value whatsoever. They have only value as a means of setting us before God so that he can give us the liberation we seek. The liberation is the end. The disciplines are merely the means. They are not the answer. They only lead us to the answer. The book discusses uh, the 12 classical disciplines, and he breaks them up into three different categories. There's the inward disciplines, which are prayer, fasting, uh, meditation, and study. And those really offer a path of internal examination and change. Then there's the outward disciplines of simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And those prepare our hearts and our minds for interacting with those around us. And then finally, there's the corporate disciplines, which are confession, worship, guidance, and uh, celebration. And these help us to draw nearer to one another and to God. So I already spoke on some of the inward disciplines back in July, and today I'm going to be talking about the outward, outward disciplines of uh, simplicity and submission. So for those of you keeping track, I'll probably be up here again at some point talking about the corporate discipline. So you're welcome for that. Um, before writing the sermon, I was kind of going back and forth, wondering if I should pivot from this topic or, or continue on or just go with a different route. Um, but I did feel that it was, it was timely given the current, current uh, sermon series that we're going through. Um, uh, I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of us have been challenged with kind of the overwhelming changes that we've seen in culture and in politics that Dr. Stokes has been addressing. Uh, one thing that he said that in particular that stuck out to me is that we're being seduced into assimilation through comfort. Uh, and if that doesn't work, uh, persecution might follow after that. And we all sit here through each of the sermons and kind of intently listening. And then during Q&A, we're like, okay, what do we do about this? How do we approach that? Um, how can we prepare our kids for what's coming? And as I'm listening to his responses, uh, kind of if I had to boil it all down, one of the things that I'm hearing is that we really need to be practicing these spiritual disciplines, uh, drawing closer to God and then teaching our kids to do the same. So I felt it was apropos. With all that being said, um, let's get into the first of the outward disciplines, the discipline of simplicity. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. We really could start earlier in this passage, but we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble in its own. Simplicity brings joy and balance to our lives, whereas duplicity brings fear and anxiety. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, urges this concept of single-mindedness um, towards towards life. Um, and later on in James, it talks about a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. Uh, I always find it interesting when people criticize Christians as being too narrow-minded. That's kind of the point, right? Um, we should be more single-minded, at least according to the scripture. We shouldn't even be worrying about what we eat, what we drink, those types of things. We should be singularly focused and letting that pervade throughout our lives. The question is, what should we be focused on? The central point to the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, and then everything else that's necessary will fall in its proper order. Um, and just to flesh that out a little bit, when we're talking about his kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Dr. Stokes has covered this a lot, it's, you, it is fulfillment. It's going to be a literal earthly kingdom under the dominion and authority of God, right? We know that. Um, in the meantime, while there's still people on this earth who don't recognize uh, the authority of God, it means his dominion and authority over the hearts and lives of believers. And that's what we should be seeking. Um, when reflecting on the passage of Matthew, um, I'm sure most of us would say we're not necessarily focused on the decision of what we're going to eat, drink, and wear, but we all spend an awful lot of time um, worrying about and focusing on how we're going to provide those things for ourselves and our loved ones. Obviously, Jesus isn't saying that any of these things in and of themselves are bad, but he's cautioning us to not even let our daily needs draw our focus away from seeking God's will. When we start becoming double-minded and placing um, our focus on material wants or needs, that's where anxiety can start to set in. I mentioned earlier that the disciplines put us on a pathway to freedom. Foster states in the book that freedom from anxiety is characterized by three inner attitudes. If what we have, we receive as a gift. And if what we have is to be cared for by God. And if what we have is to be available to others then we will possess freedom from anxiety. Now, we can apply the discipline of simplicity in many as uh, different aspects of our life, from our speech to our actions to how we view and use our finances. It's one of the most visible of all the disciplines. Let's take speech, for example. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for having these really long, drawn-out prayers in the synagogue um, for the purpose of giving the appearance of holiness. Uh, how many of us are guilty of using, uh, of saying things or using words for the purpose of just impressing those around us? I find myself doing this someti uh, sometimes, um, especially when I'm like drafting emails at work, trying to impress people without actually saying much, um, uh, instead of just being straightforward. 
Uh, my first sermon was actually over 40 minutes, and it's partly because I feel like for every statement that I made, I had to uh, justify or qualify or dress up somehow, rather than just being straightforward. Another issue is just being vague and noncommittal uh, for the purpose of obscuring our meeting or not giving a, a direct answer. It's either because we don't want to make a decision uh, or we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or whatever the case might be. Um, I tend to do this a lot with people, but especially with kids, right? Kids just ask a ton of questions, and kind of the adult trick is to actually give a response without giving an answer. Um, and so we just don't want to deal with the fallout. Um, Abby is actually studying the uh, logical fallacies in school right now. And so just yesterday, she was asking me something I didn't particularly want to answer the question. So I'm kind of dancing around the question, and I'm, I'm bringing up other stuff. And she just looks at me, and she's like, that's red herring, Dad. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, sweet, sweet child. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, and say what you want about Dr. Stokes, but uh, that man is direct. And we, we all appreciate that about him, right? Unless we're the ones asking the dumb question. Um, but he gets up here on a regular basis, and he's just like, I'm going to drop this bomb, and you just need to deal with it, right? He's very, he doesn't mince words when he speaks, and we should use that example. Um, we shouldn't uh, have ulterior motives when we speak especially in this day and age when truth is being distorted as being based on one's own experiences rather than being based on the truth uh, or on, on the source of truth, which is the scriptures. Now, before uh, moving on to the next discipline, the book calls out a handful of practical ways that we can implement this concept of simplicity into our lives. And so I wanted to go over these. Uh, like I mentioned, simplicity kind of, it's, it's really broad as far as the application. So these, these uh, practical um, things are, are equally as broad. So number one, we can buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Uh, I think this is pretty self-explanatory, just don't keep up with the Joneses. Uh, we can reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. And so keep in mind, an addiction by the very definition is something that's outside of your control. So whether that's coffee, whether that's TV, whether that's chocolate, or the little computer that's inside our pockets, right? What you're looking for is something that if the lack of it produces an undisciplined and even an irrational response within you, it's something that we should take a look at. Number three, develop a habit of giving things away. Uh, my kids are actually a really good example of this. As uh, A lot of kids in the D.C., they're always kind of giving away their toys to other people, either for gifts or just because. And interestingly enough, I'm the one that's usually telling them, like, no, don't do that. Like, you don't know how much that costs, or I just got you that, or whatever. I'm teaching them to hoard, you know, their things, and that's not how it should be. Um, developing this habit will actually give them a really good perspective on material uh, possessions. Number four, we should develop a deeper appreciation for the creation as it says in Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we should be getting closer to nature, taking time to sit outside, go for walks, uh, go to family summer camp, June 16th through the 19th, you know, things like that. Um, number, yeah, exactly. See what I did there? Um, all right. Number five, obey biblical instruction about plain, honest speech. And that's something that I addressed already earlier. Number six, and this one is difficult. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others, in particular with our purchases. Uh, this one's a tall order, and it's very complex due to the nature of convenience and affordability, but we shouldn't be breeding the oppression of others. And number seven, avoid anything that distracts you from seeking the kingdom of God, being single-minded, like we talked about before. So in attempting to be a good steward of your time, and not going 40 minutes, 
I can't go into a lot of details about each of these, but I wanted to encourage you to think about these things and kind of have conversations around these applications. Maybe some of them are easier, some of them are more difficult. Um, they seem completely obvious, all of us, you know, to all of us, but I think all too often we, we set them aside and kind of ignore them. Next is the discipline of submission. Uh, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It's just one verse, but I do want to turn there. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I can't think of a more powerful call to a life of submission than that passage. Mark 34 is the benchmark uh, for this discipline. And although it's a struggle, the concept of self-denial is very familiar to all of us as disciples of Jesus. The difficulty, however, is raised to the next level once we realize that that call to submission um, is, um, we're also called to submission to one another. After all, if we find it difficult submitting to the flawless, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, how much more so is it when we're called to submission to the uh, sinful sack of flesh and bone sitting right next to you? Um, The real issue of submission is the spirit of consideration and respect that we have for one another. Or better yet, the consideration that we have for one another because of who Christ is. We should be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul tells us in the Ephesians. When we act in submission, we're free to give up the burden of always needing to get our own way, or the burden to be treated a certain way by other people. That gives us the freedom to value other people. And it might sound silly, that burden of needing to get our own way, but that's what it is. It's, it's a heavy feeling of feeling like you need to manipulate a situation to get an outcome that you want. And that's not the way that it should be. And then when we don't get what we want, we stew over it for hours or days or people can go longer. And it, lets us, or it, it makes us affect the way that we treat other people. In submission, we're able to drop the matter and forget about it altogether. When we lay down our right um, to be treated a certain way, It means that we're free from anger and resentment when someone doesn't act towards us the way that we think they should. How are we supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you if we can't even surrender the right to retaliate to those that we love? Throughout the epistles, we see a literary form or structure that's used to outline the the practice of submission within the context of certain relationships. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves and masters, um, older women in the church to younger women, older men in the church to younger men. One reason given for the submission, for submission, which also happens to be the most compelling reason, is the example of Jesus. It's not based off of our status in life or any other circumstances. We do these things because our master did them. <clears throat> because we see this literary form repeated throughout the epistles, Martin Luther actually coined a term for him called a haustoffel. And haustoffel actually means house table, and it's basically a table of rules um, for the Christian household. Um, now, let me stop you right there. I'm not using the term haustoffel to impress you or make it sound smarter than I actually am. I learned it for the first time when reading and figured I'd pass it along, okay? So, um, this structure can be found in Ephesians 5.21, Colossians 3.18, Titus 2.4, and 1 Peter 2.18. When Foster refers to these teachings in subordination, he calls them revolutionary. And he does this for two reasons that I don't think I've heard before, or at least um, I at least found them interesting. 
The first call to subordination is to those who are already subordinate in first century Rome. Wives be subject to your or yeah, wives be subject to your husbands, children obey your parents, and slaves um, obey your earthly masters. The revolutionary thing about this teaching is that these people, who normally had no choice at all, were actually presented with a choice. Paul is giving moral responsibility to those who didn't really have legal or moral standing in the culture. Voluntary subordination was urged, not because it was their station in life, but because it was fitting in the Lord. The epistles then addressed the culturally dominant partner in the relationship and also called him to a life of self-denial. The command to subordination is reciprocal. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. And I know when we read these things, we kind of get hung up on the wording because it's not explicit to subordination. But what we fail to realize is how much submission those instructions demanded of the culturally dominant partner in that uh, cultural setting. Realistically speaking, uh, when you think about it, the wife, the child, and the slave, they wouldn't have had to change their behavior at all to abide by that command, whereas the dominant person in it, the uh, husband, the father, and the master, would have had to drastically change their behavior in order to abide by that command. If a husband loves his wife, he will live in consideration of her needs. He'll be willing to give in to her and regard her as more important than his own needs. And he'll regard um, his children as more important than his own needs as well. If you would turn with me to Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Philippians 2, 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look to your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Uh, I know that the time during a sermon doesn't really offer um, much for meditation on a particular scripture, but think about that just for a minute. Um, Humble yourselves and consider others more important than yourself. In humility, regard one another as more important than yourself. There are going to be things that you say and do today that demonstrate the degree with which you believe that statement. Whether it's something as simple as holding a door open for someone, deferring to someone else in a conversation when you speak at the same time, those are kind of easier things. But even bearing the hatchet in a relationship when something's gone wrong, or choosing to humbly end an argument rather than keep it going. So just think about those things. As I close out today, I wanted to mention one of the great things about studying the spiritual disciplines is the fact that we can always do better. There's always an opportunity for growth. And uh, that shouldn't be uh, meant for us to beat ourselves up over that we're not doing this or not doing that, but it should be an encouragement to us. Uh, In reading this book, um, each discipline has kind of its own uh, chapter. And so as I'd come to each new chapter title before I'd reading, I'd kind of naturally do a little assessment on how well I thought that I did that particular discipline. And I'm self-aware enough to know that I needed a lot of work on the majority of these. But there's probably like two or three where I was like, you know what, I, I think I got that one on lockdown. I'm pretty good there. Um, and then I start reading. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm still a fail here. Cool. <laughs> um, and that's part of the realization that helped me to continue on with this sermon is that we can always, uh, always do better. And to give you kind of a peek behind the curtain, I really uh, struggled pulling this together. Part of it is just kind of 
coming before this congregation and uh, and the self doubt that comes along with it. Everybody, you know, it's well documented for people that are speaking up here. Um, but another reason is just kind of questioning whether I can bring teach something new on this topic that's that's meaningful. And so, in struggling with that, um, I remembered the the wise words of a well known uh, teacher, thinker, and um, really a philosopher of our time. Uh, his name is Dr. Lewis, um, Nathan Lewis. Um, and I remember sitting in his class years and years ago at Cal Baptist, uh, and we were talking about churches that we attend. And the students were asking him about his church or kind of any churches that he'd recommend going to. And the sentiment behind it was that the students wanted something deeper, right? We know Cal Baptist students, they need to be fed and it needs to be deep. Um, and so in his, in his response, he was encouraging us. And he basically told everyone that if your congregation is biblically sound, if it's, a, if it's got a sound biblical foundation, and there's one thing in the sermon each week that you're not doing as the scriptures prescribe, then you have something to learn and you have work to do. So he encourages us just to kind of stay put. And so having said that, um, if we aren't always seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all aspects of our lives, or if we're not choosing to make it a habit to be subject to one another in submission out of reference for Christ, then we have something to learn and we have something to do. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.